This is the Plant Book Club. Hello! Welcome to the Plant Book Club. I'm Ellen Earhart, host of Plant Crimes, a science journalist and a fact checker. And hi, um, I'm Joram, um, science communicator and plant <laughs> science blogger and podcaster. And we have with us also... Me, Tegan. Is it me? It's me. Yes, it's um, Yeah, I also do science communication and blogging with Yaram. We together run Plants and Pipettes, which is a blog and a podcast. And I'm talking now because I'm the one who kind of suggested the book that we all read this month around. But actually, my secret is that I didn't come up with this book. Instead, I got the suggestion from several of our friends on Instagram. And we're very lucky that today we have two of those friends as guests on the podcast. So maybe we can meet them next. I'm Judith. I'm uh, both a scientist uh, at the Swedish University of Agricultural Science and leading my research group. And I'm also a founder of Flora L Design, where we design microscopy pattern that we print on all kind of textiles for doing some science arts and science communication through this art. Hi, and I'm Melissa. I am an undergraduate lab coordinator at the University of Alberta. And I'm Judith's uh, co-founder with the uh, Flora L Design, along with our other friend Delphine, who's not here today. Yeah, so Judith and uh, Melissa recommended the book Lab Girl, among, along with some other of our friends on Instagram, as I said. And this is written by Hope Yarn. And it's called Lab Girl, a story of trees, science and love. Um, and it basically follows a, a plant scientist's journey like chronologically through her career while also going through different um, plant facts. So, yeah. Who wants to start with their discussions? I, I just wondered, like, and maybe one of you know, um, is this actually an autobiography or is it like inspired by her own biography? Uh, I, I think she wrote it. Yeah, for sure. But do you mean, is it like factual? Yeah, is it like factual? Like, did the things happen oh, like I, this mostly? I think I took it to be. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, it's nonfiction. It's like her autobiography. Okay. Memoir. But I honestly didn't look into that. I didn't like see if anything was fictionalized. I googled Bill and saw okay. yeah. <laughs> yes. did I did so too. <laughs> he looks less um, like rugged than I expected. Like he gives up <laughs> in the book, he gives off an air of being very kind of disheveled is a better word. Yeah. I've got he a kind of cowboy vibe. Less disheveled. Mm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, he like lives in a hole for a lot of the book. I don't know. <laughs> That yeah, in the hole, in a car, in a van, in the lab, and then eventually yeah. in a house. That's kind of the Bill's progress throughout. But like a broken down house. Yeah. Yeah, but he fixes it, which is, I mean, <laughs> yeah, well done. I, I imagined him from the book to be like the the one char character from Brooklyn Nine Nine, the crazy unstable one who goes undercover for years and years. I find I don't know his name, but like yeah. he has like a beard and it's like he's he's crazy in the show. And from the way some of the things are described, I, I, it uh, reminded me of this character from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But yeah, I'm also, I just Googled it now. Um, and I have to say, yeah, d totally not what I imagined from the book. Okay, I'm Googling, I'm Googling. Um, it looks very civilized on the picture. <laughs> so, so what's the book about? It's about many things, I would say. <laughs> it's... it's I mean, uh, this this uh, subtitle, A Story of Trees, Signs and Love, summarizes it very well. It's very much about a 
a, a woman or a girl in the beginning getting into science and finding herself and finding herself in what she wants to become. But also it details facts about plants, but it's also really nice because you get insights in how research is done and to an extreme level also on how the life of a researcher can be like with a passion with very little funding, with exciting projects, how it can be as a woman in science, not being respected and having to fight for a reputation. So I, I was I was amazed by how many things there were actually addressed in the book in a way or another, some very indirectly, some very much like put out in <laughs> black and white. I was going to say, I thought so too, not only all that, but in the maybe the last third of the book too, where she goes more into her personal relationships and being a mother and like kind of those other roles that scientists with families play was um, a big part of the story that like struck me towards the end as well. Mm -hmm. And how she quit her lab because the lab director told her to leave when she was pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, yes. <laughs> I, I think we all have. I mean, so I guess four of us have spent time in labs in throughout Korea. Were there parts of it which you found a little bit traumatic? Like it was just a bit too close to home where you're like, oh, yeah, I've experienced that and it was not enjoyable. It was not. It's happened. It's happening still. Like for me, this kind of stuff about, you know, being told to go home because she's pregnant, this stuff is still happening in science. And some of the bits of the book, they really hit me too hard where I was like, I just, I don't want to be reading this. This is not fun. It, it hurts. Like, it's not great. I hit that part right in the middle. There's the part where they go on the long car ride and have the car accident. And I had a hard time at that point just because I felt like she was not being responsible for her, the people in her lab. And not that I've seen anything ever to that extent, but I've seen sometimes where maybe supervisors just don't necessarily have the best interest of the individual people in their labs at the forefront. They're too focused on other things or they're blinded to, mm -hmm. to those things. So at that part in the book, I was just like, I was a bit not happy with her. I didn't like the person at that time. I didn't know if I would finish the book because I was just like, because sometimes you see in, um, in academia, that type of behavior just kind of gets rewarded sometimes or continues um, without any sort of consequences. So I was worried that the rest of the book was going to go on with that type of mentality on her part. Um, so I was happy to see that it didn't that that didn't happen that she like grew as a person and changed mm -hmm. along the way I was actually really relieved like her just getting deeper and deeper into a burnout lifestyle where she <sighs> yeah. stops yeah. being able to function yeah. not eating like yeah oof. the glory glorifying this like uh, all nighters and oh yes. we were there at 3 a.m. and we were there again at 2 a.m. and he called me at 4 a.m. and I was like there was no there was no downside really of that explained except in one chapter where she really was tired and like mm -hmm. wondering what is going to happen but i think that was a bit too much because we know that that is not a healthy lifestyle in the long run yeah yeah and there's actually um a line to that regard like quite early on in the book where um one of her grad students quits and says she doesn't want that life um so it's like page 25 it's really early on 
and this graduate s- student is sneering on her way out that she didn't want a life like mine. And I just found this, so, I mean, that's fine. If your grad student doesn't want the same life as you, that should be accepted and even celebrated. Like that's their life choice. And the way she said this, I was really mad. I was really like, yeah, your life sounds horrible. And we know like in chapter nine, you're going to have a mental breakdown. You're going to like have a manic episode, go into a depressive state for four days. But you're still saying that this graduate student, like you're judging the grad student for wanting out. Like this doesn't seem, there were some parts like that where I just, I really struggled to sympathize with her as a person. Like I was, I was really mad, like coming, mm. coming from that environment. <laughs> I, I had very similar feelings. Um, <clears throat> one of my notes for the book is that I, I found both characters extremely unlikable from the traits that they presented. I have to say though, I didn't read like the, the last third of the book. Like I went uh, like, because I, I had to rush. I, uh, ran out of time. Um, so I didn't see like the big change part. Like I, Read she definitely, through, like, there was like this growth definitely happened. She becomes okay. chiller. <laughs> yeah, and also she gets more yeah. money, I yeah. think, or she becomes but more like, stable. She has a kid. Like it The all book makes opens sense. with, in the first chapter, it's sort of already late in her career. It's like in the Hawaii phase where she has a lab in Hawaii with um, with her like colleague, Bill. Um, so, and there's like, it opens with like an entire chapter of them being like extremely like overworking still. Um, so I know that even even if she grows or as she grows, she still ends up in a, in the end in a place where she she writes like, oh yeah, my 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 ch- uh, child went to back, uh, bed hours ago, and we're still here in the lab working. So it's still like not a work life balance. It's like work with a little bit of life in the end. But then so many aspects throughout at least of the first two thirds ma- made me really like yeah not like her, and I was like like. I'm just really happy that that's not my boss because there's so many traits in that that are to me just like horrible as a supervisor. Like the way there's in one episode, they give the student um, a nickname um, and they called him him Dumpling because after they worked until 11 p.m., then he made dumplings and it took a while because he had to make it on a campfire. Um, But the dumplings were really good. So they started calling him Dumpling and then she wrote that we forgot his real name. And I'm like, if I imagine that in reality, I would be working for my boss and I would go to a field trip. I would cook food for him um, after an extremely long day. And then I would be named after the food and my name was forgotten. And a name is so important in science. I actually found it like a, a horrible thing. Like the name is the thing that we put out there. The name is the thing that's on the papers. And if your own boss only knows you under a nickname, I don't know. It like it, To me, it takes away the scientific identity of a person. And there was a couple of other incidences where they were throughout the book where they were kind of like she and Bill have this really close relationship. So she's like the boss in the lab and then Bill is um, kind of her permanent postdoc and a really close friend. And obviously they have this really great like close relationship with each other where they have like it's, it's basically a codependency. But a lot of their relationship also involves mocking the students in a way that I, again, I just found really upsetting. Like when new students came in, they would make jokes about whether that student was going to turn out to be as smart as her dog or not. Like that was the comment that they had as a running joke. Um, they had one student's thesis that was really bad. So when she couldn't sleep, when she had insomnia based on her own, I would say poor life choices, um, they would read out this student's work as a running joke between them because it was so horrible and she would compare it to other pros and they would like mock it um and there was there's like just a few of those examples where i was like this is just not 
where they make yeah. them make them label all the vials and then they they start discussing about <laughs> whether they really should do the experiment or not <laughs> and they just like yeah, look a, at the reaction of the student that this is okay <laughs> This they is had not like okay. a yeah. running game of like mm. like wasting the students' time and then telling the students that it was the students' fault that the time was wasted. And this is the same person who's telling us that, you know, funding is limited and it's really hard to pay people and everybody's overworked. And it's like, well, maybe don't play these stupid games with people. Like that's not mm. <laughs> like destabilizing morale and wasting time doesn't seem like a win for anyone in this scenario. <laughs> like, boy. Yeah, and she said that if they got frustrated they weren't cut out for the lab if they called it a day and went home determined to try again tomorrow they might make it but if they started trying again immediately then they were like cut out for the job (laughs) which is also just a really poor understanding of different types of characters like the way you deal with pressure is not the same way as I deal with pressure and it doesn't mean that my way is worse like I might actually work better if I do take a break whereas I might take uh, work better if I get straight back on the horse but just because I don't process problems in the same way that she does doesn't make me a worse or, or better scientist, right? This is, again, this is something I see a lot in academia where if you don't have that exact same response that the bosses do, they think, oh, well, you must be less good at science than I am. And it's like, no, no, no I'm just different at science. That's like a difference. And that, yeah, that was hard to read. Some of this stuff was just very hard to read, honestly. I wonder if some of it is exaggerated or if it really happened like that, I could some of it read and just think that, oh, maybe that wasn't really like that. I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of discussion and dialogue in the book. And I mean, this is written 20 years after these things have happened. So part of it is also, I mean, she has this interest for poetry and for literature. And you can see also the way it's written. It's very it's very nicely worded the things on the other hand the situation that i described are very extreme but they are also calling each other things that you wouldn't call your boss or your employee and i think there is a way of their behavior that maybe doesn't all the time reflect their intentions because that's that's the impression that i got that they had both very good intention they cared for each other but they would just use swear words to greet each other in the mornings and other things and that's that's not the 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 way that usually things are working in a lab <laughs> so, i hope well, i mean i would say like with yoram i probably have that kind of relationship where you and i have like known each other like i mean we don't like call each other assholes every morning but like i think we're clear yeah i had to put an edit mark there <laughs> I think we're close enough that like we would have that kind of joking, insulting relationship. But I mean, we wouldn't then turn around and crap on somebody who I had hired or Yoram had. I think that's different when you've got this power dynamic mm-hmm. and they're like talking down on the students. I think that's a different thing to me. But And I think it's different doing that in private rather than writing and publishing it in a book. Because yeah. <laughs> I always and, and- felt bad like, oh, what if that was my thesis that they were they were reading because we've all written theses before right so I kind of put myself in the student situation in that moment but I do think I liked their kind of loose attitude with each other and like swearing because it took away some of the formalness or stuffiness that people might have when they when people outside of science think what it must be like to be in a lab like with like starched Mm -hmm. you know lab coats and everything's very formal and appropriate and you know yeah sometimes it's a little bit more like the Wild West, the way things are run in labs, right? 
Yeah. So I appreciated that it, it was kind of a window into like, scientists are real people. Sometimes they're funny. They have their own quirks and senses of humor and ways of talking with each other. Although, have you ever met researchers who were like this? Um, because, I mean, I I had a short career in academia, but still, I, I can't remember seeing anyone who closely res resembled any of the two with, like, the ferocity they went to work, with the way they did, like, these excursions, these field trips that took forever, where they were traveling thousands of miles with the students just to dig up the ground and, and analyze the soil. Um I've never seen method. anything like that. I how is that in your experience? Like is that realistic? Are these like people you would actually meet rarely but still? I mean in the conservation biology ecology kind of field it is much more common to do field trips. Like I did conspire as a bachelor and we did like drive for 20 hours up to the north of Australia and stay there for a couple of weeks doing field work. So I yeah, we stayed all together in dormitories and, and did stuff it wasn't the, the sort of working 24 hours a day just because like that is legitimately illegal for valid reasons because if you have people working tired they actually hurt themselves and so I think this was also in the 90s and I think we should take that into consideration because I'm not sure that some of this stuff would be allowed from a from a health point of view from a safety point of view um yeah but yeah I think field, the field trips do happen right I went on a bunch of field trips as an undergrad because I took like herpetology and stuff like that. And they were great, but they were, we weren't working for 20 hours a day. <laughs> Did you go to a monkey jungle then with like another, what was it like nine hour drive down to Florida no. just to spend <laughs> the afternoon with the monkeys? I think if at the end of a field trip, like our supervisors had suggested we go another nine hours of driving, like the students would have revolted and just like, yeah mutinied and taken over the bus and like driven us back to the main city honestly like we went once on a retreat and we on the way back some people wanted to go to see like also there was like a monkey park um it was just like a detour of maybe a half an hour or an hour of additional drive and there was like a considerable considerable amount of people really upset about this uh, extension of this retreat which was happening pretty much in their free time when they were not in the lab um, so yeah, I found that like yeah, Yaram, that's the proof you're not a real. Si that's why. That's why you can't be a real scientist because you don't want to go nine hours for the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the student suggestion in that in that uh, chapter actually? So it was dumpling suggestion. It yeah. was dumpling suggestion, and that I found in the way this was always this kind of balance between they would call him a funny name, but still they would listen to what they wanted, and in a way they would appreciate what he did for them. So it it was for me sometimes it was really hard to get a clear picture of mm -hmm. who are these people. It's like they are. How do they mean this when they do it? It's like. Yeah, and then Bill, in another way, she she tells that he is really good with the students. He listens to them. He listens to all their problems. He helps them the time when he lives in the lab. He would just go on any kind of problems they have and try to sort it out. And so I think in that way, you can see they were really like wholehearted when they dealt with the student, even though from what is written in the book, sometimes you can doubt how these things are really like working out. Why Why would they behave like that? It was like, it didn't always match the impression that mm -hmm. I got in one chapter didn't match the one that was presented in the next one. I felt that too. I always felt a bit of a mystery of Bill, I think specifically because in the beginning, I didn't 
really get how they got so close so quickly. And it was just part of the story that Bill was always there. But I always wanted a bit more depth as to like why he was the way he was. I know we get a little bit of information later on about his um, hand and that he felt as an outcast because of his hand. But I always wanted like more personal insight, I think, into both of them. And Mm. I don't know if she wrote it just maybe like thinking of the privacy of her friend, not wanting to go too deep into another person's experiences and psyche. But I I was always kind of looking for that, like more of a in-depth picture of what was going on in Bill's mind and why he was the way he was. Yeah. Also why he was like hanging around with her, like not being Mm -hmm. paid and having such a miserable life. He really was loyal. He was so dedicated to her. And why, what was his own motivation for, for doing that? Mm -hmm. Is that a fascination for science? Is it because he was a close friend to her and, or it's like, what? Mm. At at Mm. one point quite early on, they described that, like she she describes that together they make a whole person so that they're they're yeah not an individual each but they're half a person and together they can make a complete person so there's this like it's really codependent there's this really strong bond but as you say she obviously gets a lot from it it's really clear that without him like like he's really helping run the lab and and you know staying there forever sometimes it's not as clear what he's getting out of it honestly sometimes you got to wonder why he's still there <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, especially when he's not making enough money to support himself for basically the whole book. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and I think I always thought that there was reasons to that, but it's never, we don't get his perspective of that. Yeah. Do you think it's it's realistic with the money and the funding? Like, I, I worked in a very privileged institute where I had, if at all, too much money. Um so I know that that's absolutely not the case in in most other like institutes that you work at, but it seems like extreme in the book. Like they would raid and steal lab equipment from other departments for their own lab because they literally had no money. I mean, they went onto this on this um, extremely long road trip for like several days because they didn't have the money to buy plane tickets. Um, I, I I struggled with like imagining that this is real but maybe it's because it's like a different country and a different time that i can't relate it at all to my experience in academia but so how how do you see it i see it as being pretty realistic <laughs> so i i think it could be very much that way i didn't agree ethically when they were like stealing drills from other people's greenhouses and stuff like i just didn't like that i thought oh man that's That's not good. But I could see a researcher driving across several states to go get free mass spec equipment. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I could see that. Yeah. And like in my lab, we got a lot of equipment. In my PhD lab, we always had equipment being bought off eBay. So packages from eBay would show up and try to figure out some way to make it work. So I can see I can see it being real. And she has a calculation here somewhere, I don't remember which chapter it was, but where she she basically puts down how much money there is going to into science and is going to 
um, her research area and how many researchers there are and what that really means. And when it comes down to those figures, you can see that clearly there isn't that much available for both doing research and paying bill. And that is, I think that is the, um, mm -hmm. the big trouble. Sometimes I was wondering how he could be employed anyway for such a long time, because that's always where we've hit our limits here. At least in Sweden, you cannot employ a postdoc for that long. You need to then eventually guarantee funding and give them a permanent position. <laughs> so so there may... Well, it seems like he legitimately wasn't for a while. Yes. Yeah actually working for free for some chapters mm. in the book i think yeah they're in the middle where he was working in the van or living in the van <laughs> yeah. not working there i pretty much had to ask her to go see a doctor so she could mm. get a prescription for prozac so he could have it mm. because mm. i mean it's not explicitly said but he probably didn't have insurance at that time um yeah yeah i have to say like even in i mean germany has very good funding for science right But even within the German system, I've been to a talk by a professor whose career advice involved telling us the fact that he had had to work free for six months after being a group leader. So he was a group leader and then he couldn't get a permanent position, but he had a lab still. He had postdocs, he had PhD students. So he had to just work as a group leader while he had a family, while he had children, I think, for six months until he got permanency at a different institute. So... I mean, again, Germany does have quite a lot of funding and quite a lot of professor positions compared to some other countries. And this is still a really crappy reality of academia, like really horrible. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it was one of the main reasons why I shifted my career, because I didn't want to pursue a one year contract, another year contract, a year, year, year. There, I got to a point where there was very little stability in the types mm. of positions that I would take. So I, so I shifted and found something else because that just wasn't my, my drive. It wasn't suiting my life anymore to kind of pursue that. Yeah. And I want to like add to that, that a lot of people who are doing academic careers with these short contracts are also doing it in countries that are not their own. So when I was doing this, my visa was tied up to my job and my boss wasn't able to tell me, you know, if I would have a contract in three months time. And that was just so stressful. Like, I mean, if I lost my contract, I had to leave the country and move back to Australia it was like, not ideal. Mm. I can relate to that as well from the other side where I sometimes don't know if I have money to continue paying my people. And that is the same. And that it feels very bad because I, of course, want to give them some kind of guarantee for like, okay, you get notice long time enough ahead so that you know that, yeah, whether you look for another job or not. But it's, it's not... It's not a good situation. And when I read the book, I was in a way envious about her having Bill with her because they run the lab together. And when she is, when she is like uh, in a manic depression and everything and is away from the lab, he fixes everything and he knows exactly what he needs to do. So he's, he's extremely supportive to her. If When she comes with that crazy idea to going to that conference in California, Well, he fixes everything when she comes back after three days of having just slept. Uh, I mean, they're ready to go. He has organized the students. He has organized the drivers. He's the car. Everything is there. And mm -hmm. I think that in a way is a, she's very she can be very grateful for having him around because they he's he's a big support. He's a support when she is away. Uh, when she's pregnant and is really sick in the beginning. And, I mean, he runs the lab and he replaces her when 
she isn't able to be there and that in a way and they and there you see she is replaceable by him in a way but they also complement each other when they work together Mm -hmm. and that's a luxury to have and that's not what it is often like we have often lots of people in the high turnover and not such a permanent person with us did you relate other ways you did in the way like she was uh, starting out as a group leader and kind of going through that process? Were there other things that like touched you in similar ways? Yeah, I I think in a way, I mean, I think she said in, in a way later in the book when she, she had grown up a little bit and everything became a bit easier and a bit lighter and that was when she had more funding and she had like secured a position. And I can relate to that, that it's a lot of stress when you don't know what is going to happen. You don't know if you can run the projects. You don't know if you have funding for yourself. How will you employ somebody else? Or when people in your lab are exploit, uh, employed two years longer than you are yourself. I mean, this all happens in reality. And that creates a stress that is obviously also stress for the for the projects and for everybody in your in your group you can I mean you transmit that even if you don't want at least that's the case for me and um, I think that I could relate to that as well when she had settled more in her life and everything was more stable to her that she also could feel some kind of yeah, she wasn't so restless anymore and not so much fighting and in, in some chapters of the book it felt really like it's so hard to fight for that and I, I can relate to that it's 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 hard to be in science it's fun as well it gives you great freedom to do things but it's also a hard career choice given the situation given that you can't I mean that you can't create a group that is stable that grows together that grows over many years now you have to have people let go people getting new ones and all that and get the projects going. So I could relate to that. Mm. This is what you're saying is like quite close to the end of the book that she says that once she was, wasn't stressed to distraction about just surviving, she was actually able to have more patience, but actually fall in love with science again. That kind of got lost because of the Mm. constant terror. And I mean, this is what, yeah, it's one of the big problems with the academic system that, you know, nobody's able to work properly because they're all terrified and somehow we or somebody believes that this is a good system that is working because people are working hard to get the next job. But actually, the amount of energy that's spent on, you know, terror, honestly, is just... And, and I like that she brings that back at the end where she's like, this this hurt. Like, you know, this was mm. a problem to have the stress of survival over my head the whole time. That's That was a bit redeeming for me at the end. Mm. I I just noted down that um, this book to me reads a little bit like a pretty accurate reflection of the toxic relationship that we often have in ac- with with academia as researchers. That we we accept a lot of abuse. That if I tell people outside of academia that the things that happen in terms of like the way contracts are given, the way funding is attributed, the the hours you work, the the things that aren't compensated, the way you just have to move to different countries um, just to have a job. I mean, I, I knew some brilliant researchers who applied across the world for many very different positions um, with like a tiny chance that one of them will actually be be working out and that would then sort of 
throw the dart at the map where they would work for the next couple of years and if they want to have a family that means the family has to be okay with just moving around the world so these are all things that in many other jobs people would find unacceptable and in academia we all as researchers found ways to to justify that and uh also it's like very often literally the only way it can work like you you need this sort of movement you need this exchange uh and going to different places and so on um so in that way may even though the book is like a little bit extreme in some of the the examples there it still reflects uh, at its core it's true to me that there are things that are deeply problematic in academia and we all sort of have to put up with them to to yeah, have a successful career and like some people are lucky and they get it a little bit easier but I, I i've also known people who had really the very short end of the stick in this whole uh, whole relationship in academia yeah it's true that it's i mean and i got in the book often the impression i was wondering is it so much harder in the u.s than it is in europe because we i mean i have lived and done my most of my research in france and then in part of it in Germany but then in, in Sweden and that's a very like I found myself always in settings where we wouldn't work through the nights for example I mean this this kind of aspect to it even though if contracts weren't as stable France is a bit different than than other countries there as well because they offer more long-term contracts in a higher stage of the career but I felt this was to an extreme where I thought if I would have been in her situation, I wouldn't be have haven't been sure if I would not have given up. I mean that there are nights where I have worked through the night without sleeping. That's sure, but that wasn't as regularly, and there were long evenings and everything. But not this, like taking this as normal. I think that is nobody even of my supervisors that would have expected that and would ha even have accepted that from me if I would have done that because people would have said, hey, this is this too much, don't do this. I mean, they feel kind of some kind of responsibility for, for their employees as well. Um, so I think in that the book was more extreme than what I felt is reality. And as you said, she had Bill. Without Bill... Even those long nights would not have got her the career, I think. That's how it mm. read to me. Like, Sorry, Melissa. That's okay. I was going to say, I, as reading it, I, I took it personally that she kind of just preferred to work at night and that it was more of their routine and choice, not necessarily that they were working 24 hours a day, but that with Bill the way he was and her wanting to be with him, that they, they just gravitated to working during the times when no one else was around. So I do know in some labs and in academia, sometimes that is encouraged, like working really long hours or whatever. But I didn't necessarily take it as a message from her that that is the way it should be. So, yeah, I, I don't it know. says that she preferred working at night, right? There's parts where she's like, there was no students there. It was empty. Mm. Like, we don't know what time they're sleeping. Like, they, maybe they sleep all day. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, like, think, I, I don't think so. At the end, there's a thing where she comes in at 7.30 and Bill's been working all night and he's like, why are you into the lab so late? So it doesn't seem like she's coming into the lab at like 4 p.m. It seems like she's normally coming in 
for the day and she's lecturing as well like keeping I don't know hmm. <laughs> I had the feeling that she was working more than like 10 hours and even at the end she has the kid and she goes home with the kid but then she goes back and you know is working from 10 30 so she's like working then with the kid and then yeah at one point she says that she puts like on a regular weekly schedule Wednesdays are the all-nighter days so <laughs> oh, <there laughs> so it's like yes. really she, she absolutely normalizes wow. the, the way to pull off mm. all-nighters um and at one another point she even says that they're inefficient so that also made me wonder like why she's doing it like she says mm -hmm. like she can't do these inefficient all-nighters anymore she's like yeah maybe you shouldn't um so uh i would like to talk about something because they work in a lab and if you work all night and if you work when you are tired or when you're having a manic episode or when you know you're not in good health you can get hurt and other people can get hurt And there's two very clear examples in the book where I just completely lost sympathy even, for her. Even more. I, I have a whole point. It's disregard well, there's, there's of general two, safety. <laughs> two really big things that happened to me where she could have killed herself and other people. Um, mm -hmm. And that is in both instances from making choices which were prioritizing her desire to keep working when it was clearly not safe to do so. So the, the first one is quite early in the book. She and Bill are working in the lab. They go back to the lab after their graduation ceremony to fill glass vials with carbon dioxide, um, which is like frozen. And then as it thaws, it expands. And she overfills one because she's not paying attention. She's too tired. She gets distracted and it explodes. And basically, if it hadn't been for luck, she could have blinded herself. She makes that very clear and she could have hurt Bill as well. And that to me is just so unacceptable. Like... <laughs> I've been in a lab. I don't want my safety to be risked because other people are coming into work tired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the very first instance. And maybe like somebody else can talk about the second instance with the car. I had a big issue with the car. Yeah. <laughs> from, Let's discuss from the, the car. Beginning, from the beginning, when they decide to go on this crazy road trip with the students, like driving so far and they have a plan of everyone drives five hour shifts every day and they're driving like really long time and they have um a cooler with food that's going bad and like not enough food for the people and like urine jars in the car Thank like you, the I was urine. just like are urine jars <laughs> and the old baloney yeah uh, i think of the same esky Yeah. <laughs> and it's really made clear that the students are there not as an experience for the students, but like to drive the car. And one yes. of the students cannot drive. And because he cannot drive, they refer to him as like the meat bag or something. The, the warm cargo, the, the warm yeah. blood cargo or something. He's like useless because he's not doing his role, which is, you know, not to be educated at the conference. It's to drive the car for her to get to the conference. And again, Bill comments, the point is to get you to the conference. Yeah, and then they, they, they drive and drive, right? And uh, mm -hmm. she, at one point, she, she has to make a decision which route they take, and she decides to take the one that's like an hour shorter on over a road trip of several days, um, and they run into the snowstorm, um, mm. and the road freezes over, and her student is driving at the moment, and she loses control of the car and crashes the car. And flips it. Yeah, flips it. Um, luckily, nobody's hurt. But then another point of where she disregards general safety, she doesn't wear her seatbelt. And like it's multiple mm. times in a, like the first half of the book, it's like whenever she's in a car, she's like, yeah, I didn't have my seatbelt on. And then later, after the crash, that, she like, always says like notice. she has the seatbelt mm. on. Yeah. Um, so at least she learned something from that experience. But still, like it's just a, the disregard of, of things like general um 
Pro Protection. Um, yeah. And she was so awful to the student who was driving. Emily. Her attitude towards the student who drove and crashed the car, who was obviously traumatized and upset, she just didn't really reach out to that person, Was just didn't know how to handle it, it seemed like. And at that point in the book, I remember shutting the chapter. <laughs> I was just like, hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I can keep reading this because it was just not good. Like uh, in my labs, we do field trips with the undergrad students and the field trip is crossing the street to the river mm -hmm. valley where we go. And I have so much safety paperwork to do. And I stress so much for the student's safety, like that if anyone slips or like scrapes their arm, I'm just so worried about them being safe. And then to see someone like do that, make such bad choices over and over, put people in danger, have something go wrong and then not even really care about it. It was just really hard Yeah, Emily flips the car, right? And then they go to sleep that night and they wake up the next morning and this this poor traumatized person who flipped the car says, please drop me off. I need to go home. Like I need to get dropped at an airport. I have to go home. And what's the response? Mm. <laughs> Bill yeah, screams at her and tells her that she's disgusting for abandoning them and that she's like a traitor, basically. And this comes back to what you guys were talking about before. Like this is like Hope Yaron is writing this And she says she probably didn't do the right thing. But if I was writing my account of this, I would spend then 20 pages being like, I can't believe I did this. Why didn't I do this? I feel horrible because she doesn't reach out to the student. And she lets Bill have the final word of literally abusing this trauma patient. And she's like, you know, my loyalty is to Bill. That's how it is. Like I, And mm. from that point, she keeps on talking about how she's so lucky that Bill doesn't abandon her and that she, in this instance, Bill has proved his loyalty to her. And Bill is pointing out this student as not having loyalty. And to have chosen that narrative of that event, I cannot imagine, like, if I if I had ever caused such an accident to happen, I can't imagine when I wrote down my own autobiography, I wouldn't have pages apologizing to this student for what I did. I, this this really lost me. I, was, I just couldn't, mm. honestly. See... After I read it, though, and then when she goes through the manic episode and kind of gets diagnosed as mentally ill and gets medication and seems to get better from my reading of it, I, I took mm -hmm. it more as like, oh, she was just she was not making good decisions like this may have been part of the mental illness that, you know, too focused on certain goals and not really making responsible choices. So I think... I when I looked back at that incident, I started to give her a bit more not a pass, but just like understand that okay, maybe there was something wrong there and now she is better and maybe wouldn't choose to do that anymore, but she certainly lets it leaves it up to the reader to mm. kind of decide that because she doesn't go back to that incident and and really discuss it in any There's way like so. one sentence where she says like from all of my poor decisions i ever made that was probably the, the worst one um but that's about it and that's, it's like that's it's, about choosing the path though that's about like letting them drive that's not about the way she treated mm. emily that's true the true. fact that she didn't let the male like the friend who they stayed with override her on the choice to go through the hurricane That was the poor choice, not the treatment of a, other, another human being who had had trauma. And like, I do agree with you, Melissa, like there was definitely some some of her own issues and personal health issues playing into that. But again, if we're taking that now she's in this more stable sp space and she does 
have the opportunity to look back. Why not when you write it down, say, Jesus Christ, I was wrong. Like I did a bad thing and this should not have been. I just wish there was a bit more taking responsibility and some yeah remorse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, remorse was also what I was missing pretty much from like the, the first half, first two thirds of the book from many of the decisions that either harmed herself or others. Um, they were all very like normalized or or romanticized sometimes even. Um, yeah, she does it to prove that she's tough. Yeah, mm. and that that is probably part of the, the whole like being a woman in this like male dominated field, which I'm sure we're all super aware of. Um, but yeah, this <laughs> this is being tough and and sacrificing yourself for toughness is one thing, but sacrificing other people to show you're tough not not cool, man. Like really not. And what also they oh. like they they then like the the crashed they they stay in the motel and the crashed van gets towed and put in front of the motel and then she describes like how absolutely disgusting and filthy that thing is because this like ice box with the rotten supplies was like tipped over in the crash and one of the like urine bottles uh, was open and so on and then they get in the car and continue their <laughs> drive they yeah. ride with the pee and bologna juice <laughs> yeah she mentions that they had to also to take the car back all the way back so mm. like yeah. They spent another like four or five days in a completely <laughs> so disgusting car. Um, and like, not, not even like, she, you could say like, if it's just Bill and her, like they're, they're used to some like bad stuff, but um, the students as well. Like imagine you're a student mm. and you're, you're in this crash, your, your, your supervisor completely dis disregards your, your safety and health. And then also makes you sit another five days in a car that has like, that was crashed. Um, well, that other student actually got one of the pee bottles on him. Right. And the police yeah. officer thought he had wet himself from the trauma, like from the stress. And it was just mm. like somebody else's pee probably had like fallen on him. With, as Alan said, the bologna juice. So, what yeah. a terrible episode, really. It's yeah, um, and at that I, moment, I expected them to like learn something and like go back home and recalibrate and be like, you know, this isn't worth this. But nope, just. But again, <laughs> continued. No, I disagree with you here, Melissa, because she did learn something. That's the point for me. Like from her, the learning from that experience is that Bill was loyal. And oh, the, the the Bill screaming at the student happens on page 209. On page 210, they talk about people abandoning people. On 211, she has another mention of how Bill is loyal. And she ends that chapter on 213, talking about how she had true loyalty in Bill. So there is a lesson from that incident, but it's for her, it's the fact that Bill is loyal and other people aren't. And again, looking back 20 years later in hindsight this is not the lesson to take from this like the lesson is you traumatize somebody and you almost killed them like just yeah the other uh. lesson that she got she is really happy to be alive and when they hire the car in ireland she takes full insurance so that's a lesson learned okay. anyway. but, uh, <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true that's true but uh, i think i think when you read that on on page 209 when well bill had screamed at emily and Emily ran away into the restroom and then it says, I considered following her and telling her that everything would be all right and that everybody makes mistakes and that the whole trip had been a stupid idea and that we'd all just go home. But my intuition as a scientist told me that it would be a mistake for us to give up that easily. 
So I've, I found that very, I mean, as a scientist, you're also a human being. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with uh, following a student who is traumatized to talk to her, even if you, even though if you intend to follow along to the conference, and you could have taken out that in a discussion, but it was never discussed, there was just no way for Emily to go home. And I feel that is a bit, um, that is a bit like a, a side that it, a scientist doesn't have to be like that. A scientist is not just a cruel person who doesn't care about other people. So maybe that is something that I would think is a bit, um, yeah, the phrasing is not so, <laughs> I did appreciate that. I have something weird to say, because we're talking about Emily, and I'm like, I swear her name wasn't Emily. In my book, oh, her sorry. name is Terry. <laughs> is it Terry? Oh, I don't know. But, uh, In my book, it's it Emily. Terry? I just had an open book. But it must I have be a different, different edition, because these page numbers aren't matching, and it doesn't have the um, In my book, subtitling. What? Oh, Dumplings? The, what? Dumplings the one who crashed no. into the car? Sorry, no, I was ter- making a joke. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, yeah, but that's oh, pretty interesting. That is weird. It's I don't know why they would change it. It's definitely Emily, and I'm trying to work out: is there yeah. a Terry in the book somewhere else for you guys? Yeah, there is. I feel like there was a Terry somewhere. Oh, is that Terry's. the other car trip? Yeah, maybe no. I'm mixing up. No, but on 212, first or second row, it says Emily, Terry, and Noah crawled back into the back seat. Okay, so Terry was different. So Terry is there as well, but it's not Terry driving. It was Emily driving. Yeah, so Emily was the one who was the driver in ours, and then, yeah. And the other guy was the one who got the urine on him, who just didn't speak and got piss and baloney. (laughs) Yeah. I, I do want to use um, Judith's comment to like go on to an, a sort of another thing that I found a bit a bit weird there. So it's it's what you said. There's like this, this difference between being a scientist and being a human and showing compassion. And I also thought that came up a little bit with the gender stuff. So obviously there's like with a lot of like this like some subtle stuff and some more explicit stuff about you know being a woman in in STEM and especially like doing this field work and not being accepted. But there was something quite early on where she makes her first scientific discovery so she discovers that the the insides of the seeds have this kind of opal like substance in them and she says that at that point she shifts and she formally like from this point on she's formally missed her chance to become like any other woman that she'd known so like by becoming a scientist she'd moved away from all the the women that she knew and I do think that's specific to her life because she didn't know any female scientists. But as a female scientist, I found that a little bit like without some more context, I almost felt like it was saying, oh, now you've become a scientist. You've moved away from womanness. And that that I found a bit jarring. And I was wondering if anybody else had that or that was just like my own like projecting of something on there. I think I was. I mean, she, she puts that in f- several times in the book also when she says when she is having her son and she said that she wanted to be a father rather than a mother to him Um, Mm. and then later on she says she has reconsidered that and it was because of her own expectations on motherhood that she couldn't accept to be a mother but she wanted to rather be a father because then she didn't have to fulfill these expectations and I think that is maybe why she has maybe expectations of being a woman that she 
thinks she can't fulfill if she goes into the role of a scientist and what these expectations really are. Like her mom, for example, who gives up her, her studies or she wants to mm -hmm. study chemistry, but she can't finance herself because she can't do enough babysitting for finance her studies and then gives up and has a family. And maybe that is part of her cultural background that she has of being a woman means to have a family and take that as a first as the first choice and then being able to study is well if occasion comes along then you may as well take it but I think that could be a cultural mm -hmm. cultural or an, an experience from her own family that where she has seen that this is how a woman is expected to live yeah and I think it really to me when I read it it spoke to needing role models or wanting to have role models that you can look at and see, oh, other women have done this before. And mm -hmm. it sounded to me like she had just never had that experience in her life. And then it, I can see how it would make the, the road feel a lot more lonely if you've never seen a woman do this. Um, and, you know, the other women that you know in your life, either role models or friends are, you know, getting married and having children and not pursuing careers. It's it's pretty jarring to that person themselves to pursue a totally different path. And I think as well, I mean, concerning this of becoming a parent, I, I found that always these plant chapters in between of the story, they were very like the phrasing at the end of the chapter was very intriguing to me because it led over to her personal story. And when she talks about yeah. how plants grow and that, well, they they kind of grow until a peak and then they, they kind of decrease in their growth. And what is written here on what is 274, it says, all the green plants reach maturity. Some of the nutrients are pulled back and repurposed towards flowers and seeds. Production of the new generation comes at a significant cost of the parent. Mm -hmm. So, And then she goes into her chapter with motherhood, and which means that she sees that like this. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what she thinks of becoming a parent is like, that it, it's, it's going to come at a cost for her career. And I think this understanding that she actually can have that in the end both is also due to the, the husband she has, uh, because she, he's very supportive and he takes care of her child. But if he wouldn't have been that type of a person, she wouldn't have been able to continue with her career. Yeah, I really liked the, to speak about the plant chapters in between. I really liked all the chapters focused on plant. And in some ways, I at one point, I was like, oh, I wish it was just the plant chapters. <laughs> <laughs> when you're too distracted by the lab stuff. <laughs> but, um, but I did enjoy like the inter how they interspersed. And I think as the book went on, I started to see like the, the reflection of the personal life in the plant chapters more than I did at the beginnings of it. Um, but I did enjoy them. I thought they were well-written and interesting and scientifically accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's in, in, in general, the, the writing style, I found that extremely pleasant to read. Um, and I did enjoy the, the plant chapters uh, a lot. I think I sort of liked the way they were inter, interconnected. And I, I found that very clever. Also what you said, Judith, uh, like the, the way they transitioned from one page, uh, like from, Usually the, the, the plant story set up something that was to come or sometimes it would sort of summarize what happened before. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And I th I, th uh, I thought that was very well written the way she describes how certain mechanisms in plants work. Like she talks about resurrection plants in the desert. Um, 
that sort of detach themselves from the roots in, in times of extreme stress. Um, and then later they can re-green ag again when the conditions get better. And she links that also to her personal life. And I really enjoyed that. I, th I found that was really mm. beautiful um, plant science writing. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of The Braiding Sweetgrass, where we had that in a similar way, um, the, the book that we read before, uh, that we also had um, these very personal or like this description of plant behaviors that were very much linked to storytelling and i i really enjoyed that and overall the, the book reads fantastically well like even though i i also i got upset with some of the content some of the spot parts of the story but it um it wasn't the style of writing that would make me stop reading it mm. was like that i was upset about stuff that happened that would make me stop reading um I all actually I mean I I literally read this right until we recorded today. Um so I um I didn't really stop reading and I um really enjoyed it for for that aspect. Yeah. Yeah, I also read Braiding Sweetgrass earlier this year and the plant chapters reminded me of that book as well, the way it interweaves the science with the personal. They're like parables almost, you know. Mhm. Mm mhm. And I think you could clearly see that she, she, when her mom started then to study English literature, she got into this literature very early on. And her, she's writing poetry as well in her free time when her son is hitting the tree. <laughs> she's sitting there and writing, which is also very yeah. funny. <laughs> that funny spoke to my life as a mom of two sons. <laughs> like, that's true. <laughs> But I think it's, uh, yeah, that that kind of writing, this very poetic writing and the like the choice of words, it's really beautiful to read. And I was I was enjoying that from the very start, even that the um, like the plant biology chapters were so poetic and just having the skill to write it like that is already a great, a great skill. And it's also like quite interesting because throughout the book, part of it seems to be that she has this whole, like everything for her is about the science. Um, and, you know, at one point she even says that she has this huge nightmare of losing her lab mostly because it's the only concrete dream she ever had is to be a scientist. But then at the very end, we find out, you know, not only there are these developments in personal growth, but we found out that she always had this passion for writing as well that's just been there. So she did have other hobbies. She was actually leading a more diverse life than it led on but we just didn't hear about it until the end and that was also for me quite a redeeming feature to find that you know it is okay to have passions outside of science because that's something that I'm always a bit concerned about when a scientist says everything you love in life should be the lab and should be your science I'm like mm, that's not healthy um mm. so when I found out oh yeah she she always loved writing I was like okay good like let's let's talk about this more because I that's what I want to hear is people who have diverse interests mm. And then I think that Bill, it was Bill's initiative that she should write their story, which was also very interesting. I was intrigued through that book and it's like, oh, what, what must he have thought when she wrote this? And there were some very personal parts in there as well when her fa uh, his father died. And she was like writing down these things. Oh, I should have told him this or this, but I didn't. And all that part were like, well, of course when he he reads the book he will know that you wanted to tell him these things so i think in a way maybe the book was also a way for her to express um the things that she couldn't express in words which maybe also sometimes reflects how they deal with the students and as she said also in the chapter where she's in norway she's a very she's not 
speaking so much or she's not so so warm or talkative as maybe other people and that's why she always felt a bit like an outsider in uh, in the US and that she has this skill to express herself the way she does in written is it's just such a gift for somebody who feels is maybe not so talkative in real life. Mm. But you're right, it starts and ends with Bill and it does seem a lot like a, a long letter to Bill to kind of, you know, highlight their memories that they had together, right? I mean, the mm. husband is there, but he's very much a minor role and this is something where she explains like constantly she has this just really strong twin soul relationship with this this other person. Mm. I was wondering, Ellen, what did you think about the plant biology chapters? You uh, as not having the plant biology research background. How, how did you feel of reading of them? I mean, I thought they were gorgeous. Um, I appreciated learning about the science. I mean, a lot of the stuff she discussed, I've read through other things. I'm, uh, I cover environment and nature and plant stuff a lot. Um, so... Yeah, I thought they were really nice. Mm -hmm. And what did you think about the, like, so in some parts, they explain how they really do the experiments. And I could really relate to that thinking about, like, how they would do and how, like, exciting it is. And then you wait for a result or they look at this weird plant that is kind of turning in a weird way. That's like me looking at weird things under the microscope. No idea what they are, but they were just beautiful. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. <laughs> so did that, I mean, it talks to us as scientists very much reading that, I think. How is that for a person not having done lab work, experimental research and, and these kind of activities? Yeah, I did some lab work in undergrad, and I think this gave me a lot of insight into what my PIs were going through, because <laughs> I was like, they kind of seem grumpy all the time, but I don't really know why. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I mean, I definitely respect that, like, I know my... Uh, biology undergrad didn't have the funding that uh, everyone wanted. <laughs> and so it was really clarifying about um, like this insight into science and into what these academics are going through. Um, and so, yeah, as I interview them for my job, it gives me a lot of insight into that and like the struggles that they face mm -hmm. and also like the joy, you know, Yeah, I wondered the same thing, because there were some parts reading um, where she was dissecting conifer seeds and uh, culturing them in a laminar flow. And that's where my research started in undergrad was I was literally doing that, like scoring the seeds and cracking them open and taking the embryo out. So that was just like really nostalgic for me to read that whole process. And I thought, oh, I'm loving reading this. But I wondered... How would some, like, that's because I had that experience. I wondered how it would come across to people not doing science, whether they would find that really interesting or whether they would find it kind of boring. And I also found, like, some of the parts where they're labeling the vials and collecting the moss samples, like, it really showed how science is sometimes very repetitive, sometimes very tedious, but 
we do it still and there's there's an internal drive there sometimes just to to answer a question that really pushes people forward in science even though the work sometimes at surface level can be repetitive and dull I thought that was reflected nicely in some of the Mm. stories it's it's definitely one of the most accurate readings of academia right it just (laughs) the good and the bad and the boring and and the amazing she captures all of these so so well and just writes them so nicely and clearly it's it's yeah when all the samples get thrown out at the airport oh my goodness my heart broke (laughs) yeah because i think yeah i mean people can relate to that if you've had an experiment go wrong or you know something went wrong with your growth conditions and it's just all garbage yeah the chambers break the freezer shuts down there's these instances have happened contamination yeah yeah. The freezer one is is the one that I was always most terrified of. Just like power outage (laughs) and then like the minus 80 completely thawing. It doesn't even need to completely thaw. I mean, if it's long enough at like minus 10, you can already throw away like most of your RNA samples in there. Just enough for the (laughs) RNA to break down. Just enough. (laughs) Yeah. I also like the description of the mass spec when they go pick it up and they go through this long detailed description of the mass spec, how it's kind of Frankenstein together and there's weird tape marks and a piece of string and like mm. labels on it. Like that just, I don't know, that really captured for me some of the labs that I've worked in where it's a bit a bit handicrafted and a bit of like secret code sometimes as to how to work some of these. Yeah, she talks about how every scientist has their own special technique. And the labels like turn this on last or open this first. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's really important things. They always, you can be as smart as you want. You want to have that reminder. <laughs> it really comes to. Yeah, to always with lab stuff. tape written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also enjoyed this like description of how she is uh, culturing the embryos. And it's so, so different when you read that as compared to when you read it in a scientific paper or in a protocol. So that kind of like a third version of seeing how somebody would describe that. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's very, very nice. And you can learn a lot about uh, science communication when you talk to people that are outside the lab, because it's, there's so much attention to detail, yet it's not, I don't think it's boring. It's like really how you would imagine. We often describe only what we do but she describes like what she sees and how it feels and her shaky hands and that she wished she wouldn't have drink been drinking so much coffee and like all these troubles that you can face as a scientist that Mm -hmm. you wouldn't get out of any kind of scientific publication (laughs) i mean we 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 like to watch like woodworkers for entertainment just like see people working on a piece of wood and so many people like me included find that so soothing and calming to just like see somebody like working on the thing until it's done and in science communication we very often just focus on like not the handiwork not the craft that we're doing but instead of like oh yeah and then there's like this rna interacting with like this protein and uh, and i mean like it's the core like it's what we as researchers are interested in but maybe it could be interesting to also really keep like or put a focus on the hands-on stuff like how how does it feel to to run a mass back like how do you like sitting in front of like hundreds of samples aliquoting them what are like your movements like the little things like i always try to optimize my movements and become sort of work out my my own routine and become like my own little robot in there and like that i knew like my left hand is doing this my right hand is doing that um so um yeah i also enjoyed reading her descriptions of that and i take that away from it that that might be like another cool way 
to really show like what it is like to be a researcher on a really like hands-on level. Mm. Does anybody have any like favorite parts of the book, favorite passages or lines or anything that like really jumped out at them? There was one part, and I of course can't find the exact quote now, but when she starts talking about scientists and it was something like a, what a scientist must be or something, and she's like, she uses the pronoun female pronouns to describe mm-hmm. scientists as the default. And just I remember that that hit me so hard. And here I am a female scientist. I know women can be scientists. I've been around it. I have, you know, friends and mentors and colleagues who are women, but just to see it written as the only default, not he or she, and not just he, it really it was powerful for me to read that. And I appreciated seeing that. And then the jarringness of seeing that made me like, I had to like process a lot in my mind about like, oh, even I'm conditioned to not think of scientists as women in in some degree because I'm so, you know, surprised by the use of that pronoun there. So that, that I wish I could find the spot in the book, but But I also that jumped yeah, I, out. I remember it jumping out when I read it as well. So absolutely like super powerful. To me it must have must must have been some of the plant descriptions. Um and I just like browse through them. And one of them that really stood out for me was on page 81. It's chapter seven. It's about she, where she talks about um, leaves and how the first leaf is formed and the first real leaf, like the first you have the cotyledons that come out of the um, the seedling. Um, and then you have the first real leaf that's formed. And how what it really stuck with me and something I never thought about was this idea that um, of course the the leaves follow a blueprint but it's a very crude blueprint and if you take like any two leaves from a tree and you overlay them they will not be identical they will have the general architecture in in common but they both will be unique to them and probably it will be really hard to find two 100% identical leaves on a tree even though there's like thousands of them on the tree and they all are made sort of with the same genetic information but in a way that there's always like a little bit of wobble in there. And I just, this is something that definitely stuck with me, this idea that um, even though we like to imagine very often like this very straightforward thing, like there's genetic information and it's like read and expressed and then there's things acting on it. And then as a result, the plant grows, um, there's still enough like wiggle room in there, enough sort of leeway that will result in, yeah, not two leaves being identical on a tree with thousands of leaves. And I, I quite like that idea. Um, and that really, that that was, I think, I, not, I don't know if it's my favorite part, but one of my, my favorite parts in the book. I have my favorite part here, I think, when she starts setting up her first lab. And that is, I think there she is, she's still very different than later on or in the center of the book. Um, but she would like have a name on boxes and then like uh, spending lots of time, six hours to prepare one lecture because she was so unsure. She was only 26 when she got that assistant professor position. And then it's like she, she when she orders chemicals or equipment or anything, she piles up these boxes and then it says, I would pick up a box, shake it, try to guess exactly what was inside, start to open it, restrain myself and then return it to the pile. And she describes that as it's like Christmas and they were going to like create the dream the dreamscape that we had so often described so it was really this 
in like looking forward to creating the things on her own and to doing this project that she so much had wanted to do. Um, and then getting into the teaching all the while where she said she felt like the students knew more than herself in, and then she gave them all an A because she didn't want to be a, <laughs> an unfair person. So it was a lot of, I think it was, I could relate really a lot to that. When you get this opportunity, you feel super, you're super happy, but you're also very unsure. And then there's expectations of other people, which she also describes. It's like now I was expected to to look and behave like an assistant professor, but what does that actually mean? So it's a lot of things that come in that I really felt that this excitement and th these feelings, I could relate to that. Ellen, do you have a favorite bit? My favorite part was the part about how each scientist has their own mass spectrometer and their own unique way of dealing with it, which we already talked about. Mm -hmm. So There was also a part about how all of us are monkeys and each of us has our respective <laughs> monkey as well, which was fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have one last question um, that it's... Like I just browsed through the beginning and I realized that there are all of these like quotes from like um, reviews. And it says, Lab Girl is arguably a better motivator for a career in science than any mandatory curriculum. And oh, no. <laughs> I read that too and I thought, who can say something like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I completely disagree with that as well. Like I think, I mean... If you if you like to do science, despite all the things that she describes, maybe it's really the one thing that you want to do, and maybe that's great. But I don't think anybody who's like on the fence whether they want to do science or not will sort of jump into the science part when they when they read the book or do. Or no, do you I, see that? I I don't know. I've actually the one of the people who recommended that we read this, who reached out to us on Instagram, actually said like this book made them want to know more about plants, but specifically also plant science. So, I mean, it is so beautifully written that it does encourage you towards plant science and maybe not the world as a plant scientist, mm -hmm. but at least plant science. And I think, like, this is actually why I'm happy that we have the five of us here today because we all are at different stages and doing different careers. And, like, clearly different parts of it hit us different ways. And part of this is because she writes so beautifully that you can feel every single moment of it. So some of the problem is that we feel the stuff that's stressful and it reminds us of <laughs> our, our own stress. And I can imagine if you haven't been through those same stresses, that's not so strong in you. Like, are we just having this very visceral response to some of the words in the book, honestly? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I would say I would recommend this book. Like, it's a good book. How would you rate it? Do you want to go to the ratings? Um, yeah, so just as an explanation maybe to, to Milsa and Judith, we always rate them out of five with our own made-up categories. Um, so, yeah. But actually, you're free to give it whatever rating system you feel most comfortable with. I don't want to impl <laughs> impose any rules here. But Ellen, maybe you go first. Like, how would you rate the book? I would rate it five hemlock leaves out of five hemlock leaves. Like, I really enjoyed the reading experience. I think it gives a lot of insight into her life and the things that she values. Um, even though there were definitely cringy parts where you're like, what are you doing? Um, I thought it was a really good insight into her life as a scientist. And you, Jing? Ooh, I, I'm going back and forward. I think I'm going to go for four chloroplast out of five i i really struggle with some of the parts of the book i i really just want to yeah throw the book away and set fire to it at some parts um and i found it like 
I was angry at her. I was angry at the system. I was angry at her role in the system. But it is it is so beautifully written. And the reason I'm angry is that be- because she does show this so well. I, I, yeah, it's just really, really well done. And as a book, it's amazing. It's just that it's reflecting a system that itself not so amazing sometimes. <laughs> so four out of five. <laughs> I would also give it four to five. I thought about like my category today is um, pieces of personal protective equipment because there's always <laughs> like one important bit missing in her stories. Like she's not wearing eyeglasses when she works with the exploding glass shards. She's not putting on a seatbelt. She's not wearing hearing protection when they, she complains about a very loud compressor and this like tiny confined space that they have. So that's why there's one missing. And also because as you said, Higgin, there were like th- some parts in it that also made me really uncomfortable and the, the thing that I take offense in is the the romanticization of uh, a lot of like really toxic str- behaviors you see still today in science and that they're not sort of addressed enough. Like they're just yeah. presented and not discussed. Um, and that's why I would give it like deduct one, one out of five. But uh, in total, I really enjoyed reading it. I, th- I, I think, and it made me really like think critically even if i even though i i often disagreed it made me like it, it started a thought process which i really liked um so i would still recommend to read it but be aware of the, the issues there uh i would give it also four out of five ectomycorrhiza on a poplar tree <laughs> amazing <laughs> so um i agree with you that there are rough parts and there are parts that tell a lot about her, which is also, I mean, she, she expresses what she thinks there. And um, I wouldn't agree with her. I don't think she may, she necessarily behaved the right way, um, but we're all different. So that was her decision to take this, uh, this along. But I really loved the way how it was written, the idea of mixing the science, the, her personal story, her relationship to Bill, the insights into how science is done, how um, paleobotany is done, which I hadn't known much about. Um, so I would really recommend to read the book. Um, and I agree as well that the way she writes makes it so touching, frustrating. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. It makes us feel what we feel, and that is a great book in that way, even though we don't have to agree agree with it all. I will give it four and a half road trip urine jars out of five. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. But one of them spills. Right? There's a bit of a spill. I think because it's uncomfortable, right? Um, but for all the reasons that you guys already kind of said, it's beautifully written. It brings a lot of accurate plant science into the story that captures people's imagination. Um, I don't like the normalization of extreme lifestyles. And I, in my reading of it, I felt more redemption from her at the end than maybe I think everyone else saw and maybe I was just hoping for her as a person (laughs) and that was my personal reading of it but so so I saw it in that way so I felt like it was um just a really enjoyable book to read and yeah I if she wrote another book I think I would definitely pick it up and read it because her style of writing was very uh nice nice to read um okay yeah 
<laughs> we all rated right. I mean, what we have to decide then is what we're reading next, I think. And if you would like to join us again, and if so, what we should read all together or, yeah, what the plan is. Does anybody have any suggestions? I think technically it would be Ellen's turn to decide what we're reading. Um, oh, no, I didn't have one prepared. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why. I have on my shelf. Um, oh, I really like The Botany of Desire. I read it a few years ago. On my shelf, I have The Cabaret of Plants. Um, I also have the Amy Stewart book about, uh, like, poisonous plants. We read a book by Amy Stewart about the botany of alcohol. Um, so those are kind of my options today. Uh, which, which is jumping out to you, Alan? Or well, I also have else? this book called Plants That Kill, um, A Natural History of the World's Most Poisonous Plants. I want it. <laughs> Let's do that one. Can we do that one? <laughs> okay. It's like a coffee table book. It's, it has nice pictures and stuff. So, Does that, that sound okay? sounds very yeah. beautiful. That sounds very good. Yeah. Um, cool. Then uh, I guess it's decided that we're going to read that. Um and yeah with that and i if, think yeah sorry no I, I wanted to like close the show i think that's now the time where we all plug our respective projects sites and social media accounts so maybe we let our guests begin judith and uh um, and melissa where can people reach you if they want to learn more about you or about the things that you do well they can reach us on uh on our website flora-l.com uh, or on uh, Instagram on uh, flora.l.design <laughs> I have to think it's like that I do it right <laughs> and there, uh, and we also have the f um, Facebook page in the same name so that's where you can find us for doing microscopy art from plants um, that's exciting and otherwise For my research, I can be found at the Umeå Plant Science Center. That's where I'm situated. And there we have a website as well, upsc.se. So that's where, where I'm doing my research. Anything to add, Melissa? No, you did said it all for the Flora L design. So that's, that's enough. Ellen, where can people learn more? These are so beautiful. I'm looking at the Flora L design website now and they're amazing. We're waiting um, for Tegan to show us what she's going to sew. Yeah, I just got some of the, the soft linen like a couple of weeks back and I haven't had time to get around, but it feels really great and I'm very excited to make a top out of that sometime. <laughs> what pattern did you get? Um, the one with the, the plant cells. So it's very like these geometric, like um, hexagonal technically, but elongated plant cells. Um, I don't know if you can see it. The so woody me, walls. Thank you. Woody Wolf, yep. there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> But yeah. I also bought um, some of the isolated Arabidopsis cell tea towels as Christmas gifts for my friends, and they loved them. So oh, amazing stuff, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think that. that's my favorite design, the isolated cell one. They look like bubbles, right? It's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you look closer and you're like, that's, that's the thing I love about it. It's like you see kind of a pattern, and then you look closer and you're like, this is not just a pattern, this is life. Like, this is what's all around us and yeah it's brilliant it's such a clever idea and really nicely executed thank you yeah it's yeah. very cool it's very cool for us to order it and then when it comes here as real products it's like wow it's also like christmas every time and every time i send something off it's like packing a christmas gift <laughs> yeah and it's more like <laughs> us just bit. making pretty stuff for ourselves because we're like oh we like that i want that printed <laughs> <laughs> excellent that's how it should be <laughs> 
All right. I am Ellen. You can find my Twitter at Ellen Earhart. Uh, you can find Plant Crime, the Plant Crimes podcast, and uh, I changed my Twitter name on the Plant Crimes. Now it's just Plant underscore Crimes. Um, and yeah, you can find me at Ellen Airplant, my Instagram. And um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm working on a new Plant Crime season now, so I'm very excited for that. Hey. Yeah, um, and Tegan and and me, you can find on uh, plantsandpipettes.com. Uh, where we do plant science blog posts and podcasts uh, and also on social media where on Twitter you can talk mostly to me that's at plants pipettes and on Facebook it's me it's at plants and pipettes and also on Instagram and yeah was that it? yeah <laughs> and then something? also like I think soonish maybe by episode 10 we will have also a Twitter account for this podcast but so far I think we're just using our respective <laughs> project accounts um, so yeah, but if you, the listeners liked what we, uh, what we're doing, what, um, you can always send us, uh, suggestions to any of our social media accounts for, for books to read. Um, you can rate us wherever you can rate podcasts, uh, and tell your friends about us. That would be really cool. Um, maybe they're looking for uh, a nice podcast to tell them which books to read and some of them, which they shouldn't read because also we had those in the past. Um, uh, and yeah, please tell your friends about us. That helps a lot. With that, yeah, thank you to our guests. Thank you so much for joining us. Maybe we will do that again in the future. And goodbye. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was so much fun. It was great. The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons license 3.0.